0: The text of the sermon is from the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And I'd like for you to turn to that passage, if you will, the seventh chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and I'll read verses 13 through 23. Enter by the straight gate, by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The Reverend Charles Burnett visited one of his parishioners in the hills of southwest Virginia, and he saw he had a fine dog. He knew that it was some kind of a hound, but he couldn't identify the breed of of hound, and so he finally asked the old mountaineer, what kind of a hound is that? And he said, well, uh, she is half blue tick, and half brown and tan, and half, and he he interrupted and he said, well, now, it's not possible to have three halves of anything. And the old parishioner answered with a twinkle in his eye, when you you ask me, you asked me what kind of a dog she was. You didn't ask me if she was balanced. Jesus' call to enter the narrow gate is a good occasion for us to speak to the issue of balance in religion. For every time religious faith has gotten itself in trouble, it's usually because someone has gone off on a tangent. Whether it was uh, Jim Jones in Guyana, or the uh, Spanish inquisitors in medieval Spain who were deeply religious, and zealously sincere or whether it was whether it is the snake handlers in Appalachia the christian faith has been irreparably and irreversibly harmed by those who have taken some aspect one aspect of their faith and they have emphasized it fanatically to the exclusion of the totality of the gospel as a matter of fact when Jesus said, enter into the narrow gate. That becomes a proof text for one group to um, express their own narrowness and bigotry. Just a few, they say, they sneer, will get into the kingdom of heaven and all the rest will go to hell. Yippee, hooray for our side. But when Jesus said, enter into the narrow gate, he was not advocating narrow-mindedness. As a matter of fact, there can be a strong case today to to support the conclusion that the primary reason Jesus Christ was crucified in the first place was because he's challenged the narrow mindedness and the bigotry of the religious leaders of his time. He always ate with the wrong people. Can't you hear their conversation as they talked about him? Do you know who this man ate with, this Nazarene ate with yesterday? No, who did he eat with? Why, he ate with Levi, that tax gatherer. And they gathered their self-righteous robes together and they gasped. And he broke every tradition and every regulation that they established concerning the Sabbath day. And he treated women, even Samaritan women, as though they were persons with real worth. And he was always redefining redefining the law and the prophets. He said, you have heard it said of old time, but I say unto you, no wonder these religious leaders couldn't wait until they nailed him to the cross. For he is a rabble, a rebel, a radical, one who will threaten the status quo. And doesn't it seem totally ironic to you that this man Jesus whose whole life was lived in stark rejection against narrow-mindedness is used as an excuse for imposing narrow sectarian viewpoints on someone else. And isn't it a shame that Jesus is used as an excuse for all manners of bigotry and prejudice and narrow-mindedness. No, when Jesus said to enter the narrow gate, He was not advocating narrow-mindedness. Well, what did He mean? Is it possible to have a faith that is balanced and burning at the same time? And while Jesus never advocated a narrow-mindedness and exclusiveness, on the other hand, He did not call people to a tepid, watered-down semi-faith that so characterizes so many in the Christian community. So what did he mean when he talked about entering the narrow gate? And is there a balance where one can have a balanced faith and a burning faith at the same time? I think there is. I think the call to the narrow gate in the first place is a call to a faith that is fruitful, that is productive, Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. It is true that what we do reveals what we are. But there is a flip side to that truth also. It is this truth, it is the answer to this question. What about a a fruit tree that bears no fruit at all? It is logical that one, Jesus said, would look for good fruit from a good fruit tree. It is also logical that one, if he's looking for fruit from a fruit tree, would find some fruit there. What about a tree, a fruit tree that produces no fruit at all? Jesus once cursed a fig tree that bore nothing but leaves. I think it's time for us to recognize one of the great unspoken truths, one of the great unspoken commandments of the Scripture and that is that we take control of our lives. It's time for us to quit whining about how unfair life has been to us and quit blaming someone else for our mistakes and failures. We are responsible for our lives and we were called to have dominion over our destinies. We are not to be reeds blown by the wind. We are to recognize that God has given us a marvelous freedom and with that freedom of choice, He has also given us untold opportunities to alter our circumstances and change our situation and improve our lives. Jesus wants us to be productive and not passive. And so He told a parable about this wise and faithful servant And the Lord made him master over the household. And he said this master would be so happy if when he returned he found that this servant was living responsibly. For every time Jesus lauded and bragged on those who were productive, not the pious passive, but the productive. And he even told about this unscrupulous servant who learned that he was going to be fired and so he took his master's money and bought some friends, kind of a hedge against the future. And his disciples were totally shocked when Jesus bragged on this man's ingenuity for at least he didn't just sit back and whine about how unfair life had been to him. He took control of the situation and changed it and Jesus praised him for it. And there's a humorous event in the in the book of Exodus. And the children of Egypt, uh, the children of Israel are fleeing out of Egyptian bondage and they come to the Red Sea and they're and they're surrounded there. They're they're pressed up against the Red Sea as the Egyptians coming hard down upon them from behind. And Moses is up there and he's bringing this marvelous exhortation and this prayer and he's telling the people, you know, Wait upon the Lord, trust God, you can depend on Him, etc. And right in the middle of his prayer, God interrupts, and the Living Bible translates it like this. Stop praying and get these people moving forward. March, for there is no virtue in standing still. There's a time when people should pray and there's a time when people should act and produce and take charge of their situations. It's right to wait on God. Let me tell you something, folks. We can wait on God and wait on God and look up one day and God has given up on us and has already moved on. For there comes a time when a person has to take charge and act and move and put some feet to his prayers, as we used to say. Kind of like Martha Berry, who who was the founder of the famous Berry School. She had nothing but a dream. She had no money, she had no school, she had no books, but she had a dream that the little slave children on the plantations would learn to read and write. And so she went to Detroit and she went to Henry Ford and she said, I don't have any, I have no books, I have no school buildings, I have no money, but I have this dream and he, she told him about it. And he was so unimpressed that he gave her a dime, 10 cents. And that rejection would have devastated most of us, but it didn't hurt her. She went back and she gathered her little slave children around her and they took that dime and they bought some seeds. And they took the seeds, a package of seeds, and they planted them and they raised a garden from those seeds and they took that fruit, that produce, and the seeds of them and they planted another and another and another until the produce was enough to build the first school building. And she got that first building built and she went back to Detroit to Henry Ford And she said, I want you to see what your dime has done. She said, I took that dime and now I have this school building down there. And and he was just, he couldn't believe his ears. And to make the long story short, he gave her a million dollars to complete her work. And I think it might be a pretty good illustration of Christian faith. Now, Now hear me now. Christian faith is not belief that is based upon perception. Christian faith is action based upon an eternal promise. Now what Jesus meant when he said, the way is broad that leads to destruction is this. Anybody can get in the crowd and kind of drift along with the crowd, kind of like a chip of wood on a a stream. But a person who is... God's kind of people are people who take charge of the situation, enter into the narrow gate and the straight gate that leads to life and produce something fruitfully. The call to the narrow gate is a call to personal discipline. Now the meaning of righteousness is so easily perverted. I mean, what does it mean to be right with God? Somebody would say, well, I don't smoke, I'm right with God. That's righteousness. Or I don't wear makeup or cut my hair. That's, that, that, that means I'm righteous. Listen to these words. I don't smoke and I don't drink. I don't play cards or dance. And the love of the table, the gambling table, has no attraction for me. Every moment of my life is led by the inner spirit. You know who said that? Would you you say that the Apostle Paul said that? I mean, it's a paraphrase of something he said. Every moment of my life, I'm led by the spirit within me. It wasn't him. And some of you who are acquainted with Augustine, the founder and the leader of of modern Catholicism, would say surely that was was Augustine's philosophy, a theology, wasn't him. It wasn't Wesley and it wasn't Martin Luther and it wasn't Billy Graham who said that. But w- when you hear words like that you might think, well surely that man was just, you know, just right down the line a godly man. You know who said it? Benito Mussolini said it. And Benito Mussolini was the fascist dictator of Italy and during World War II he was probably, probably the second man to Hitler and leading Italy in alliance with them. And it just bears out the fact that we have defined righteousness with such narrow terms that it is an insult to those who are practicing personal Christian discipline in life. What does it mean to enter the narrow gate? What does that personal discipline mean? The righteousness to which the New Testament calls us is a wholeness that embraces all of life. The righteousness of the New Testament is an awareness that life is a gift from God and must not be lived irresponsibly. We're responsible for every moment of our life. The righteousness to which the New Testament calls us is a consciousness that the body is a a gift from God and must not be abused or exploited and our family relationships are gifts from god and must not be neglected or soiled by improper conduct and our neighbors are gifts from god and we must treat them as we treat ourselves the call to the narrow gate in the third place is a call to a new level of commitment somebody said that excellence is demanding of yourself a little more than anyone else. I think that's true across the board. It's certainly true in the, acad- in the, uh, in the athletic world. Excellence for an athlete is when that ex- athlete demands a little more of himself than his coach. It is true in academia. An ex- excellence in academia is when a person demands a little more of himself than his teacher. It is true in life, excellence is asking of yourself a little more than anyone else asks. Now in the Christian life, excellence is asking of ourselves a little more with regard to service to God and to fellow man than anyone expects. Now, if you read this passage through and follow this Sermon on the Mount, you'll find this truth appearing again and again. That a Christian is one who does a little more than is expected. If he's asked to go one mile, he goes two. If he's asked to give his coat, he gives his cloak. If he's asked to turn one cheek, he turns the other. That's excellence. When I was in high school, there was this film, a, a historical novel made into a film, and the title of it, and I shared this in a devotional with, my, with the kids the other night. The title of the film was Quo Vadis. Some of you can remember that if you remember it, it dates you. Quo Vadis was a film that was based upon the legendary last days of Simon Peter on the earth. And the words mean, Whither goest thou? Quo And the and the scene, the heart of that movie, takes place in Rome, where Nero is persecuting the Christians. And he takes some, he sews them up in wild animal skins and puts them in arenas to to ravaging animals. And they and, and they are just mutilated and devoured by these animals. Christians, sewn up in animal skins. And, and, and this demented Nero took some of them and he poured wax over, over them and he set them on fire. And these Christians slowly burning to death were the torches that lighted his courtyard in the palace grounds. And Simon is fleeing for his life. And he escapes over the walls of Rome and he's looking back and he sees this these lights burning against the horizon, and he knows his, his Christian friends are dying in Rome. And he turns to encounter the Christ. And falteringly he says, Domini Quo Lord, whither goest thou? And the Lord said, I'm going back to Rome. My friends need me. I'm going back to be crucified again. And then he looks at Simon, and he asks, Petra quo vatus, Simon Peter, whither goest thou? And it pierced him to the heart. For he remembered how many times he had run out on God. He remembered how many promises to God he had never kept. He remembered how He was obsessed by his own self-preservation. The only thing that mattered to him was his own skin, his own neck. That's all he thought about. And in that dynamic and and moving moment before the Lord, he repented of this this obsession of of self-preservation, and he went back to Rome. And he went back to do the work of God there. And he himself was crucified, legend has it. And and, and because he felt like that he was unworthy to be crucified like Jesus, he was was crucified head downward. Now does it seem a little melodramatic this morning for me to ask you, Vatus, whither goest thou? And are you a little tired of that kind of a, that that, that nominal Christianity that makes a kind of a a verbal commitment to Christ, that kind of a shallow, tepid, halfway commitment that so characterizes most of us? Or is there a kind of a voice inside of you saying, totally commit yourself to Christ and go all the way with it? Is there that voice inside of you that is saying, this is enough of this shallow halfway Christianity. How about a total commitment to God? Finally, the call to the narrow gate was a call to love. The Apostle Paul says, reminds us, warns us that there is an inherent danger in zeal. Zealous people, there is an inherent danger in zealous people. Zealous people have a tendency to be intolerant of other people. You ever notice that? I preach a revival in Oldton, Texas, a little town out west of Lubbock, and I... I noticed one, the Monday morning, the first Monday morning, I noticed that the lady I was, the, the, the people I was staying with, the wife of the, of the um, uh, husband where, that had invited me to stay there was up reading her Bible at the kitchen table early in the morning. She had her Bible out, she had books out, she had paper, she was taking notes. I was really impressed. After the noon service in the afternoon, I came I came home and I, I went in there, and I looked in there, and she was in there again. I don't know whether she may have stayed in there. And she was uh, at the table reading her Bible. She had books and paper taking notes. A little bit later on in the afternoon, I guess an hour or two later, I left to go out and visit with a pastor. Passed by, waved at her sitting in there in the kitchen table. She had her Bible, her books, her notes, paper taking notes. So after the service that night, uh, this lady and her husband and the children and I were just kind of sitting around eating some ice cream. And I mentioned to her, I said, I'm really impressed with you. I saw you in there reading your Bible and doing your quiet time, etc. and just kind of a hush came over everything. I know it's just tension. You could just cut with a knife. And she kind of cleared her throat and she said, well, my husband wants me to be a Martha, but I'm a Mary. And she was alluding to that time where Martha was busy doing housework and cooking, and Mary wanted to sit at the feet of Jesus. And so I just kind of changed the subject. I knew that I'd said the wrong thing. usually do. The next morning as I got ready for church, he came into my room and he said, do you ever do any counseling with couples? And I said, yes, I do that, as a matter of fact. He said, I want to make an appointment with you. My wife and I want to visit with you this afternoon. And so I did. we sat down. This is what happened. He said, you know, when she gave her life to Christ, she became a different person. And I'm rejoicing in that, he said. It was wonderful, the, the, the commitment she's made to the Lord. Well, he said, she, she won't accept me anymore. He said, she, don't, she won't accept me as I am. He said, I don't, even, I don't feel like she even loves me anymore. She's so far above me in the Christian life. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm actually intimidated by her. And he said, when, when she made this decision, he said, uh, uh, she's zealous in the Word, but, but she cuts me down because I don't read my Bible, and she's always cutting me down because I don't spend more time in prayer. And he said, I've just been trying to beg her. I've been her, trying to help her to see, you know, to, to give me a chance, give me time, and I'll get there. What he was saying was that in her zeal, to do what God wanted her to do, or in her zeal to find some walk with God, she had become intolerant of others, even her husband. That's the danger. The danger of the zealous is to become arrogant and prideful. The danger of the zealous is to become self-righteous and contemptuous of those who don't see life as we see it. That's the danger there. A young Hebrew student went to his rabbi, this man of great, uh, gr- a great piety, and he said, Sir, I want to tell you that I love you. And the rabbi looked at him and he said, Do you know how I hurt? And the Hebrew student said, I'm, I'm confused. I came to tell you how much you mean to me, and you ask me these irrelevant questions. And the rabbi said, How can you love me if you don't know how I hurt? And so the Apostle Paul said it like this, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, it's just I become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And then he said, if I give my body with with that kind of zeal that would offer my body to be burned and have not love, you can draw the bottom line and it profits nothing. And that's the dividing line between faith and fanaticism. Do you have passion or do you, do you have passion for souls? That's one question. Do you have compassion for people? That's another. And there are a lot of people who have passion for souls, no compassion for people. And so Jesus hung on that cross, watch this, hear this, and his passion for the kingdom was matched only by his compassion for the people of the kingdom. I mean, he could have led a revolt. Have you ever stopped to think about this? Jesus could have had a kingdom that was greater than David's. And there was a time the the enemies of Jesus said themselves, the whole world is going off after him. He could have had the whole world in his hand, in the palm of his hand. But his passion for right and for God's will was matched by his compassion for people. And he never ran roughshod over anybody, not even a Roman so when they came out and Simon Peter cut off the guard's ear and put it right back on. And when Judas was there in the place where they were to, to have that last supper, Jesus not one time looked at him and said, you'll pay for this for what you're doing. He had a compassion and a love for people. Now listen carefully. The zeal that Christ invites us into when He invites us to enter the narrow gate that leads to life, is a zeal for people and their hurts, a zeal for people and their sorrows, a zeal for people and their lostness. For Jesus stood up one day and He opened up the Scriptures and He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bring release to the captive, and the recovery of sight to the blind, and to bind up the wounded. And then he said it, the zeal of the house of the Lord consumes me. And this is what he meant. My desire to help people and to love people and to care for people and to minister to people is setting me on fire. I pray that it will you. Because there are a lot of hurting people that need us. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we hear the call to enter in the straight gate the narrow way that leads to life. A way of personal discipline and excellence. A way of true zeal that's manifested in one's love for his fellow man and for the hurting of the world. Father, We can't say that we're zealous for souls if there's a neighbor next door, if there's a young person next desk who has disappointment and hurt and we pass them by. We can't say that we're zealously Christian if we walk down the road and leave the people lying beside it without ministering to them. So may our zeal May our burning be a burning of love that extends itself to the hurts of mankind, to the lost of our world. I pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now look this way. Our invitation this morning is this invitation. Enter into the narrow gate. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. There's only one way, and I think at the heart of this is that truth. There's only one way to Christ, only one way to God, that's through Christ. Only one way for salvation, that's through Jesus. So the first invitation, and these invitations happen simultaneously. The first invitation is for you to come and place your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. Trusting in the church, trusting in works, trusting in baptism is not the way. The all-inclusive plan of redemption, which includes every man, is the way of trusting in Jesus Christ and Him only. I am the way, the truth, and the life, He said. We invite you to come this morning and trust Jesus as your personal Savior. Second invitation is for you to come this morning and place your life in the church. Sure, Christ loved the church, he died for it. And if there's any other way that God wants to reach the world other than the church, he would have told us, there is no other. And you will not have an effective and dynamic witness anywhere unless you're involved in the life and the ministry of some local church So I invite you to come and place your life in the church. I invite you in that third invitation to come and give your heart and life to Christ in total commitment to a zeal for people, to a compassion for people, to a personal discipline, to a new level of commitment. I call you to that today. I pray you'll come as we stand and as we sing. You step right out. It's easier to come right on the first word. Come right now.